This is section 40 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1864, Part 1. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1, 1864. The Cosmopolitan Hotel Besieged. As a proof that it is good policy to advertise, and that nothing that appears in a newspaper is left unread, we will state that the mere mention in yesterday's papers that the Cosmopolitan Hotel would be thrown open for public inspection caused that place to be besieged at an early hour yesterday evening by some thirty thousand men, women, and children, and the chances are that more than as many more had read the invitation, but were obliged to forego the pleasure of accepting it. By eight o'clock the broad halls and stairways of the building from cellar to roof were densely crowded with people of all ages, sexes, characters, and conditions in life, and a similar army were collected in the street outside, unable to gain admission. There was no room for them. The lowest estimate we heard of the number of persons who passed into the hotel was 20,000, and the highest 60,000. So we split the difference, and call it 30,000. And among this vast assemblage of refined gentlemen, elegant ladies, and tender children, was mixed a lot of thieves, ruffians, and vandals. They stole everything they could get their hands on—silverware from the dining-room, handkerchiefs from gentlemen, veils and victorines from ladies, and even gobbled up sheets, shirts, and pillowcases in the laundry, and made off with them. They wantonly destroyed costly parlor ornaments, and pulled down and trampled underfoot the handsome lace curtains of some of the windows. They went through Mr. Henning's room, and left him not even a sock or a boot. We observed a day or two ago that he had a bushel and a half of the latter article stacked up at the foot of his bed. The masses, wedged together in the halls and on the staircases, grew hot and angry, and smashed each other over the head with canes, and punched each other in the face with their fists, and to stop the thieving and save loss to helpless visitors, and get rid of the pickpockets, the gas had to be turned off in some parts of the house. At ten o'clock, when we were there, there was a constant stream of people passing out of the hotel, and other streams pouring towards it from every direction, to be disappointed in their hopes of seeing the wonders within it, for the proprietors having already suffered to the extent of several thousands of dollars in thefts and damages to furniture, were unwilling to admit decent people any longer, for fear of another invasion of rascals among them. Another grand rush was expected to follow the letting out of the theatres. The Cosmopolitan still stands, however, and to-day it opens for good, and for the accommodation of all of them that do eat and sleep, and have the wherewithal to pay for it. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1, 1864. Rincon School Militia. Before disbanding for a fortnight's furlough, the boys connected with Rincon School had a grand dress parade yesterday. They are classed into regular military companies, and officered as follows by boys chosen from their own ranks. Company A, Captain John Welch, B, Captain John Warren, C, Captain Henry Tucker, D, Captain William Thompson, E, Captain Robinson, F, 
Captain Charles Redman, G. Captain Cyrus Myers, H. Captain Henry Tabor. Companies I and J have no regularly elected officers, we are told. The drummers of the regiment are two youngsters named Douglas Williams and John Seaborn, and their talent for making a noise amounts almost to inspiration. Both are first-class drummers. The Rincon boys have been carefully drilled in military exercises for a year now, and have acquired a proficiency which is astonishing. They go through with the most elaborate maneuvers, without hesitating and without making a mistake. To execute every order promptly and perfectly has become second nature to them, and requires no more reflection than it does to a practiced boarder to go to dinner when he hears the gong ring. The word drill is the proper one. Those boys' legs and arms have been drilled into a comprehension of those orders so that they execute them mechanically, even though the restless mind may be thinking of anything else in the world at the moment. Professor Robinson has been the military instructor of the Rincon Regiment for several months past. The school exercises, earlier in the day, were very interesting, and consisted of dialogues, declamations, vocal and instrumental music, calisthenics, etc. The humors of the draft, a sort of comedy, illustrative of the shifts to which unwarlike patriots are put in order to compass exemption, was well played by a number of the schoolboys, and was received with shouts of laughter. Douglas Williams played on his drum a solo which would have been a happy accompaniment to one of our choicest earthquakes. A young girl sang that lugubrious ditty, Wrap the Flag Around Me, Boys, and the extraordinary purity and sweetness of her voice actually made pleasant music of it, impossible as such a thing might seem to any one acquainted with that marvelous piece of composition. The principal, Mr. Pelton's heir, an American sovereign of eight summers and no winters at all, since his life has been passed here, where it has pleased the Almighty to omit that season, gave a recitation in French, and one in German, and from the touching pathos and expression which he threw into the latter, and the liquid richness of his accent, we are satisfied the subject was a noble one, and wrought in beautiful language, but we could not testify unqualifiedly in this respect, without access to a translation. The Rincon School was mustered out of service yesterday evening for the term of two weeks. FINE PICTURE OF REVEREND MR. KING California and Nevada Territory are flooded with distressed-looking abortions done in oil, in watercolors, in crayon, in lithography, in photography, in sugar, in plaster, in marble, in wax, and in every substance that is malleable or chiselable, or that can be marked on or scratched on or painted on, or which by its nature can be compelled to lend itself to a relentless and unholy persecution and distortion of the features of the great and good man who is gone from our midst, Reverend Thomas Starr King. We do not believe these misguided artistic lunatics meant to confuse the lineaments, and finally destroy and drive out from our memories the cherished image of our lost orator, but just the contrary. We believe their motive was good, but we know their execution was atrocious. We look upon these blank, monotonous, overfed, and sleepy-looking pictures, and ask, with Dr. Bellows, where was the seat of this man's royalty? 
but we ask in vain of these wretched counterfeits. There is no more life or expression in them than you may find in the soggy, upturned face of a pickled infant, dangling by the neck in a glass jar among the trophies of a doctor's back office any day. But there is one perfect portrait of Mr. King extant, with all the tenderness and goodness of his nature, and all the power and grandeur of his intellect drawn to the surface, as it were, and stamped upon the features with matchless skill. This picture is in the possession of Dr. Bellows, and is the only one we have seen in which we could discover no substantial ground for fault-finding. It is a life-size outline photograph, elaborately wrought out and finished in crayon by Mrs. Frances Molyneux Gibson of this city, and has been presented by her to Rev. Dr. Bellows to be sold for the benefit of the Sanitary Commission. It will probably be exhibited for a while at the Mechanics' Fair, after which it will be disposed of, as above mentioned. Dr. Bellows desires to keep it, and will do so if bids for it do not take altogether too high a flight. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1, 1864. The Theatres, etc. Mr. Massett's Lecture. Drifting About. The printer, having by mistake announced in the big bills the entertainment of Mr. Massett for last night, this is to say that to-night is the occasion when he will drift before his audience, spread his sail to the popular breeze, and make the waves ripple with prose, poetry, humor, and song, imitation, incident, and story. There is enough of variety to please the most exacting, fun enough for the most funny, humor for the gay, pathos for the serious, and whims for the eccentric. He will do a greater variety of things than any other man ever attempted before an audience in one night, and brevity will be united with the variety. As the entertainment is announced as for one night only, those who would hear and see Massett should go to-night. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 1, 1864 STRATEGY, MY BOY one of our new policemen was lying exceedingly low in a Chinese alley the other night, for the purpose of surprising a loafer who was in the habit of stealing the bread of a butcher, the butcher thinking it was not meat that he should do so. While lying prone on the ground, the officer was discovered by a vigilant Chinaman, Ah Wei. The former feigned obliviousness. The benevolent Chinaman shook the prostrate form, but meeting with no response, decided that the ghost of the policeman had gone to another beat, and concluded to administer on his estate. John took an inventory. Item, one pistol, when suddenly the officer sprung to his feet and took John. He was brought before Judge Shepard, yesterday morning, charged with petty larceny. His counsel, Mr. Zabriskie, said that any innocent person might go through a man's pockets under similar circumstances. The argument was overpowering and Awa was discharged. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 2, 1864. The Mechanics' Fair. The stern, practical appearance which the great array of machinery and all manner of industrial implements has heretofore given to the pavilion is being softened and relieved now by a pleasant sprinkling of fresh flowers and beautiful pictures, and by the time the art halls are fully dressed with paintings, and the central tower with blooming plants, 
and the fountain below filled with limpid water, and the thousand lights ablaze above a mass of people in ceaseless motion, the place will look as vivacious and charming as it now looks tumbled and shapeless. And while on this flight, it is proper to state that in the east wing of the pavilion, Mr. Beers will have an excellent and commodious restaurant, where visitors can obtain anything or everything they may choose to eat or drink, and in quantities to suit the capacities of all stomachs. How naturally doth the cultivated human mind ascend from art and horticulture to hash and hominy! The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 2, 1864 Lost Child A fat, chubby infant about two years old was found by the police yesterday evening, lying fast asleep in the middle of Folsom Street between 6th and 7th and in dangerous proximity to the railroad track. We saw the cheerful youngster in the city jail last night, sitting contentedly in the arms of a negro man who is employed about the establishment. He had been taking another sleep by the stove in the jail kitchen. Possibly the following description of the waif may be recognized by some distressed mother who did not rest well last night. A fat face, serious countenance, considerable dignity of bearing, flaxen hair, eyes dark bluish-gray, by gaslight at least, a little soiled red jacket, brown frock with pinkish squares on it half an inch across, kid gaiter shoes, and red-striped stockings, evidently admires his legs, and answers dada to each and all questions, with strict impartiality. Anyone having lost an offspring of the above description can get it again by proving property and paying for this advertisement. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 3, 1864 Suicide Out of Principle The Grass Valley National of Tuesday evening tells a story of a Chinaman named Ah Sin, who committed suicide in a very civilized way, impelled thereto by an enlightened motive. Asin loved to smoke opium. He had, it may be supposed, a quantity of his favorite drug, but lacked a pipe. In an evil hour, when suffering for the want of a smoke, he chanced upon a pipe worth four bits or a dollar, and incontinently gobbled it up. At least, that was the charge made against him by some other Chinamen, who were so angry with him for thus disgracing the national character for honesty, that they could not take time to starve the culprit to death in the usual manner, but undertook to beat him to death. A policeman rescued him from the hands of the executioners, and for safety placed him in the calaboose. John called for his pipe and his opium bag, took a farewell smoke, and then, taking his sash, a dirty silk one, from his waist, hung himself with it with a great deal of difficulty and determination. The policeman discovered him dead when he went in to give him his regular tea. He was in a kneeling position, from which it may be inferred that he died while saying his prayers to Josh. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 3, 1864 Labyrinth Garden Visitors to the Mechanics' Fair today should examine carefully the pretty and ingenious Labyrinth Garden in miniature, gotten out by Mr. Frank Steglich, and situated near the Floral Tower. It is easy to see your way into it, and the paths are very straight, but to see your way out again is the impossible feature of the thing. 
although this garden, with its endless complication of drives and avenues, is only about as large as an ordinary lunch-table, the grass plats, flower-beds, and rows of microscopic trees with which it is luxuriously embellished, are all alive and growing. There are within the garden one hundred and twenty-five perfect trees, from one to three inches high, belonging to many different species of California's lordliest forest monarchs, among which are the giant redwood and several kinds of pines. The long rows of Lilliputian shrubs which enclose the garden are vigorous young cedar trees, and there are three thousand of them. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 3, 1864. The Lost Child Reclaimed. The child which we mentioned yesterday as having been found asleep in the middle of Folsom Street by the police, and taken to the city jail, has been called for, collected, and carried away by its father. It knew its father in a moment, and we believe that it is considered to be a severe test of smartness in a child. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 4, 1864. The Californian. This sterling literary weekly has changed hands, both in the matter of proprietorship and editorial management. Mr. Webb has sold the paper to Captain Ogden, a gentleman of fine literary attainments, an able writer, and the possessor of a happy bank account. Three qualifications which, in the lump, cannot fail to ensure the continued success of the Californian. Mr. Frank Bret Hart will assume the editorship of the paper. Some of the most exquisite productions which have appeared in its pages emanated from his pen, and are worthy to take rank among even Dickens' best sketches. Taking all things in consideration, if the Californian dies now, it must be by the same process that resurrected Lazarus, which we are proud to be able to state was a miracle. After faithfully laboring night and day for about four months, and publishing fifteen numbers of the best paper in its particular department ever issued on this coast, Mr. Webb will now go and rest awhile on the shores of Lake Tahoe. He has chosen to rest himself by fishing, and he is wise, for the fish in Lake Tahoe are not troublesome. They will let a man rest there till he rots, and never inflict upon him the fatigue of putting on a fresh bait. Inigo has our kindest wishes for his present and future happiness, though, rot or no rot. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 4, 1864. The Hurdle Race Yesterday. The grand feature at the Bayview Park yesterday was the Hurdle Race. There were three competitors, and the winner was Wilson's circus horse, Sam. Sam has lain quiet through all the pacings and trottings and runnings, and consented to be counted on, but this hurdle business was just his strong suit, and he stepped forward promptly when it was proposed. There was a much faster horse, conflict, in the list, but what is natural talent to cultivation? Sam was educated in a circus, and understood his business. Conflict would pass him under way, trip and turn a double somersault over the next hurdle, and while he was picking himself up, the accomplished Sam would sail gracefully over the hurdle and slabber past his adversary with the easy indifference of conscious superiority. Conflict made the fastest time, but he fooled away too many somersets on the hurdles. The proverb saith that he that jumpeth fences with ye circus horse will I come to grief. 
The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 4, 1864. Domestic Silks. California may branch out and become a great silk manufacturing state some day, when it becomes known that her facilities for doing so are much superior to those of most other lands. Mr. Louis Provost of San Jose, who has a lot of silkworm eggs and cocoons on exhibition at the Mechanics' Fair, says that in Europe the greater portion of every crop of silkworms get diseased and die, but in this climate they all live and come to maturity. It is impossible for them to become diseased. He also says that here it is but little trouble and requires small care and attention to raise silkworms, and that in his department of labor one man here can perform the work of eight in Europe and do it with comparative ease. Mr. Provost gets no opportunity to manufacture California silks, because the demand for his silkworm eggs is so great from foreign countries, and the prices paid him so liberal, that he finds it more profitable to lay the eggs and ship them off than to keep them and hatch them. As fast as the worms produce them, he sends them to Italy, and comes as near filling all orders from there as he can, at twelve dollars an ounce, containing forty thousand eggs. He has an order from Mexico now for five hundred ounces, but he is unable to fill it. They say that a silkworm ranch is one of the few kinds of property in this world that never fail to pay. Let Californians make a note of it, and act upon it. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 4, 1864 Looks like sharp practice. The examination of Simon Lewis, the pawnbroker, charged with exacting usurious interest, was concluded yesterday in the police court. The testimony for the prosecution presents this state of facts. Adolf Warner took a watch with chain attached to the shop of the pawnbroker and pledged it for forty dollars, but did not receive the ticket which the law requires pawnbrokers to give in all cases to the person pledging an article containing a description of the article, number of the pawn, and date of the transaction signed by the broker. When Warner's wife discovered that he had left the watch with Lewis, without taking a ticket, she went herself for it, and received from the broker two tickets, one for the watch and one for the chain, purporting to evidence two separate loans of twenty dollars each, instead of one entire loan of forty dollars. The law prohibits pawnbrokers from taking a greater amount of interest than four per cent on sums over twenty dollars, but on sums of twenty dollars and under they are in the habit of charging ten per cent. The prosecution claims that his was but one loan, but that defendant had bifurcated the pledge so as to reduce the sums to within the limit upon which the high rates are charged, and thus compelled him to pay ten instead of four per cent. The case looked badly for the pawnbroker, but when his own books were introduced in evidence, with his own clerk to explain them, of course Lewis would be exculpated, at least in the eye of the law, that is to say, he would, and he did, escape through a mere doubt, a doubt in law but nowhere else. Lewis had the manufacturing of all the record and documentary evidence himself and he would have been a more stupid knave than is generally to be found among pawnbrokers if he had not made it to suit his side of the case in the event of a future controversy about it. From the contradictory character of the evidence, the judge could not convict the defendant, 
but he delivered a short and pointed homily on the subject of honesty as the best policy, and gave notice that he would be somewhat rigorous in future complaints of that sort. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 4, 1864, A Terrible Monster Caged A most wretched criminal was brought into the police court yesterday morning on a charge of petty larceny. He stands between three and four feet in his shoes, and has arrived at the age of ten years. His name does not appear on the register, so the world must remain in ignorance of that. He is an orphan who has been provided with a home in a respectable family of this city, and is charged with having taken some chips and sticks from about Dr. Toland's fine new building, which it is supposed he uses in kindling the fires for the family he lives with. The person whose vigilance discovered grounds for suspecting this fatherless and motherless boy of the horrible crime is a carpenter who works at the building. The county is indebted to him. The little fellow came into court under a strong guard. He was terrified almost out of his senses, and looked as if he expected the judge to order his head to be chopped off at once. The matter, if entertained at all, will be heard on Monday, and in the meantime the little boy will anticipate worlds of misery. It is a matter of wonder to some that a deliberate attempt to send an indefinite number of souls to Davy Jones' locker, by one who occupies a prominent position, escapes judicial scrutiny, while the whole force conservatorial is hot-foot in the chase after some little ragged shaver, some fledgling of St. Giles, unkempt and uncared for, who flits from corner to corner and from hole to hole, as if fleeing from his own shadow. But such persons don't understand conservatorial policy. Let the hoary-headed sinners go. They can get no worse, and soon will die off, but look sharply after the young crop. The old trunk will decay after a while and fall before the tempest, but the sapling must be hewn down. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 6, 1864. A Promising Artist the large oil painting in the picture store under the Russ House of the Blind Fiddler is the work of a very promising California artist, Mr. William Mulligan of Halesburg, formerly of St. Louis, Missouri. In the main, both the conception and execution are good, but the latter is faulty in some of the minor details. Dr. Bellows has a smaller picture, however, by the same artist, which betrays the presence of genius of a high order in the hand that lend it. The subject is a dying drummer-boy, half sitting, half reclining, upon the battlefield, with his body partly propped upon his broken drum, and his left arm hanging languidly over it. Near him lie his cap and his drumsticks, unheeded, discarded, useless to him forevermore. The dash of blood upon his shirt, the dreamy, away-at-home look upon the features, the careless, resigned expression of the nerveless arm tell the story. The colors in the picture are not gaudy enough to suit the popular taste, perhaps, but they represent nature truthfully, which is better. Mr. Mulligan has demonstrated in every work his hands have wrought that he is an artist of more than common ability, and he deserves a generous encouragement. One or two of his pictures will probably be exhibited at the Mechanics' Fair now being held in this city. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 6, 1864. Peeping Tom of Coventry. An amorous old sinner named John Fine 
went to the North Beach bathhouse on Sunday for a swim. Owing to the number of pounds he weighed, he was forced to wade, his weight being considerably over several stone he couldn't swim, for whoever heard of stones swimming? In order to make up the deficit of fun, he went to the partition that screens the ladies' department and peeped through a crevice. Mr. Ills, the proprietor of the establishment, witnessed the untoward scrutiny and ordered him away, but life's charms riveted fine to the spot, and he heeded not the ills, when his person suffered under the weight of another stone. The proprietor sent a projectile which struck him in the face near the left eye. Astronomically speaking, fine saw stars, but didn't think it a fine sight. He left at once and prosecuted ills. Yesterday Mr. Ills was fined five dollars for assault and battery. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 6, 1864. Turned out of office. Resident physician Raymond, visiting physician Geary, and matron Weeks of the city and county hospital, were all summarily bundled out of office last night by the Board of Supervisors for alleged official neglect, indifference, indolence, and general dry rot produced by long continuance in office and apparent security in the possession of their places. Notice was given of a motion to reconsider this action, and in the meantime the two doctors and the matron were, by resolution, to retain their offices until their successors were appointed. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 6, 1864. A small piece of spite. Some witless practical joker made a false entry a few days ago on a slate kept at the dead house for the information of the public concerning dead bodies found, deaths by accident, etc. The Alta, Bulletin, and Flag administered a deserved rebuke to the coroner's understrappers for permitting the entry to remain there and pass into the newspapers and mislead the public, and for this reason the slate has been removed from the office. Now it is too late in the day for such men as these to presume to deny to the public information which belongs to them, and which they have a right to demand, merely to gratify a ridiculous spite against two or three reporters. It is a matter of no consequence to reporters whether the slate is kept there or not, but it is a matter of consequence to the public at large, who are the real injured parties when the newspapers are denied the opportunity of conveying it to them. If the coroner permits his servants to close the door against reporters, many a man may lose a friend in the bay, or by assassination or suicide, and never hear of it, or know anything about it. In that case the public and their servant, the coroner, are the victims, not the reporter. Coroner Sheldon needs not to be told that he is a public officer, that his doings, and those of his underlings at the coffin-shop, belong to the people that the public do not recognize his right or theirs to suppress the transactions of his department of the public service, and, finally, that the people will not see the propriety of the affairs of his office being hidden from them, in order that the small potato malice of his employees, against two or three newspaper reporters, may be gratified. Those employees have always shown a strong disinclination to tell a reporter anything about their ghastly share in the coroner's business, and it was easy to see that they longed for some excuse to abolish that slate. Their motive for such conduct did not concern reporters, 
but it might interest the public and the coroner if they would explain it. Those official corpse-planters always put on as many airs as if the public and their master, the coroner, belonged to them, and they had a right to do as they pleased with both. They told us yesterday that their coronial affairs should henceforth be a sealed book, and they would give us no information. As if they, a lot of forty-dollar understrappers, had authority to proclaim that the affairs of a public office like the coroner's should be kept secret from the people whose minions they are. If the credit of that office suffers from their impertinence, who is the victim, Mr. Sheldon or the reporters? We cannot suffer greatly, for we never succeeded in getting any information out of one of those fellows yet. You see the dead cart leaving the place, and ask one of them where it is bound, and without looking up from his newspaper he grunts lazily and says, Stiff! meaning that it is going in quest of the corpse of some poor creature whose earthly troubles are over. You ask one of them a dozen questions calculated to throw more light upon a meager entry in the slate, and he invariably answers, Don't know, as if the grand end and aim of his poor existence was not to know anything, and to come as near accomplishing his mission as his opportunities would permit. They would vote for General Jackson at the body-snatcher's retreat, but for the misfortune that they don't know such a person ever existed. What do you suppose the people would ever know about how their interests were being attended to if the employees in all public offices were such unmitigated ignoramuses as these? One of these fellows said to us yesterday, We have taken away the slate. We are not going to give you any more information. The reporters have got too sharp. By George, they know more'n we do. God help the reporter that don't. It is as fervent of prayer as ever welled up from the bottom of our heart. Now, a reporter can start any day and travel through the whole of the long list of employees in the public offices in this city, and in not a solitary instance will he find any difficulty in getting any information which the public have a right to know until he arrives at the inquest office of the coroner. There all knowledge concerning the dead who die in mysterious ways and mysterious places, and who may have friends and relatives near at hand who would give the world and all its wealth for even the poor consolation of knowing their fate, is denied us. Who are the sufferers by this contemptible contumacy? We, or the hundred thousand citizens of San Francisco? The responsibility of this state of things rests with the coroner, and it is only right and just that he should amend it. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, September 7, 1864. Christian Fair. The Ladies' Fair of the Christian Commission will close positively tomorrow evening. Tonight and tomorrow night there will be a sale or two at auction, but the ladies wish it distinctly understood that there will be no general auction of articles left on hand at the close of the fair. They consider that when half a dollar may be the means of saving a soldier's life, they have no right to fritter away donations at a sacrifice. They have already reduced prices to cost, and in some instances even below cost, and if the articles cannot be sold at these rates, they will be retained and contributed to swell the resources of the Christian Commission in other portions of the state. They have a stove, a set of furs, several fine cakes, and a few other articles of value which they are anxious to dispose of before the fair closes. 
those who desire to purchase will please make a note of it about the middle of the hall on the east side mrs alford has in a glass case several bouquets done in wax by mrs selim woodworth wife of the commander of the u s ship narragansett which are to be given to the lady who polls the largest vote for them it costs something to vote in that ward and the money thus collected is to be forwarded directly to the wounded soldiers the largest of these bouquets is an exquisite work of art and will bear the closest inspection the silver vases containing the smaller bouquets were donated by mrs alford near at hand the last-named lady has a rare set of books which she has contributed and which are also to be voted for and will be presented to the pastor who shall be in the majority pay your poll tax and deposit your ballot it has occurred to us just at this moment that if any of the barefooted disciples traveling according to their custom without purse or scrip should return to earth and happen into the fair they couldn't vote could they consequently it is risky charging for votes isn't it manifestly the san francisco daily morning call september seventh eighteen sixty four terrible calamity explosion of the steamer washoe's boilers supposed killed one hundred wounded and missing seventy-five several san franciscans among the number attention paid by the sacramentans to the wounded the cause of the calamity scenes and incidents etc etc we compile an account of this terrible disaster from dispatches published in the evening papers the explosion of the boilers of the washoe took place at ten o'clock at a point just above the hogsback about ten miles above rio vista on her up trip on monday night one of the boilers collapsed a flue and it is said made a clean sweep aft going overboard through the stern of the boat the cause of this dreadful calamity according to d m anderson the engineer who died at the sacramental hospital just after he made the statement was rotten iron in the boiler at the time of the explosion there were one hundred and twenty-five pounds pressure on the boiler with two cocks of solid water the engine was high pressure the upper works of the boat aft were completely shattered some portions of them with the staterooms being blown overboard the boat had passed the hogs back about four or five minutes before the explosion she was about twenty yards off the left bank at the time and the whole steering gear being destroyed she took a sheer and ran ashore her bow providentially touching a tree to which those not injured fastened the boat had she not run ashore almost everybody on board would have been lost as they could not steer the wreck and they had no boats the steamer sinking gradually astern the boat was set on fire in three places which added to the horror of the scene the fire however was put out by the few who were uninjured the chrysopolis was a long way ahead and knew nothing of the matter the antelope being behind came up and took off the wounded and a large number of the dead and brought the first news of the sad affair to sacramento measures for relief of the wounded and taking off the dead on the arrival of the antelope at sacramento about half-past five o'clock yesterday morning with the terrible news the alarm bells of the city were rung and the howard association turned out to attend to the wounded the steamer had brought up the scene for the three hours that elapsed before the antelope reached the steamer washoe is described as most horrible all who were alive had been taken ashore 
but there was no shelter for them. Those of the wounded who were able to move sought shelter in the sand and brush, groaning and screaming with pain. One man, who was scalded from head to foot, got ashore, and in a nude state stood and screamed for help, but would not allow any covering to be put on him. A woman in a similar condition was brought up on the antelope. The steamer carried only the wounded to Sacramento. A large number of the slightly wounded who could walk or ride were taken to the rooms of the Howard Association. The Association hired the Vernon House for a hospital for the sufferers. On board of the Antelope the scene was a most dreadful one. Her entire upper cabin, with the exception of the passageways, was covered with mattresses, on which the injured were lying, sixty-three in number. Others were in the ladies' cabin, and still others in the dining-room. Four are reported to have died on the way up, and at the time of landing others were gasping their last on the levee. At the Vernon House the Howard Association have a large number of members who, with a large force of ladies, are doing all that can be done for the sufferers. The Association also has a committee out collecting who have so far met with good success. Immediately on the arrival of the Antelope, the steamer Vesalia fired up and went down to the wreck to bring the bodies of the dead left there by the A, and also such others as may be recovered while she is there. Approximately twelve hundred words listing dead and wounded has been omitted. Flags were at half-mast yesterday on the Masonic Temple and most of the engine houses, and on a number of private buildings in Sacramento. The entire medical fraternity were in attendance on the sufferers, as well as the clergy of all denominations. The opinion is now that the total dead will exceed ninety, if not one hundred. Too much praise cannot be awarded the members of the Howard Association, who almost to a man were engaged in behalf of the sufferers after the arrival of the antelope. A large number of ladies were in constant attendance also at the Vernon House, doing all that they could do to alleviate pain. The collections in Sacramento have been quite liberal. End of section 40